0: Hey, this is the first time I get to talk to you since you've won the Pulitzer Prize for playwriting, which the Pulitzer for fiction will come too, I'm sure. The kinetic energy of Homeland Elegies, I sort of feel like no one ever sits down. No <laughs> one sits down and everyone's constantly moving. There's always something happening. You're talking about money. You're moving forward. Everything's changing. It feels like you're on stage.
1: No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I mean, with the, the energy of the book was, it was pouring out of me and it pours through and kind of runs through the ravine of whatever the, the journey that this book takes you on or takes mm-hmm. took me on. Rather than it being on stage, though, I do think that that's an appropriate analogy. I, I tended to think of it more like a social media scroll, that it was mm-hmm. constantly moving, discrete pieces of information, social histories, reminiscences, outright scenes of dialogue, sexual encounters. Everything is kind of just... Like on an Instagram scroll, the picture after picture after picture after picture, a lot Mm -hmm. of disparate pieces that kind of get unified by the fact that they're all inside a novel. They're all inside this flow.
0: This book is such a portrait of this moment in America, and this sort of chaos that we're all going through, regardless of where we are in the country, or we do not have it together. We don't know what's happening next or what's coming next. And yet we still think money is going to save us.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, I it's, mean, really, we do. Yes, it is. Yeah, no, I know. It's the American solution. It's like the end of It's a Wonderful Life.
0: <laughs> money will save Bedford Falls, but also Robert Bork makes an appearance in this novel. He and does. it just...
1: <laughs> He makes a pretty significant Sorry. appearance in the book. <laughs> yeah.
0: But of all of the figures from the 80s, he was the last guy I was expecting to see. Like, of course, you expect to see Ronald Reagan. You expect to see some savings and loans people, you know, a little BCCI, all sure. of that.
1: But Robert Bork? Well, look, I mean, if, if ideas are what really move history in a way, mm-hmm. and if ideas are what are moving the flow of money in this country, then you couldn't probably do better than Milton Friedman and, and Robert Bork. and a couple right. of other people. Like those are the people who actually put in place the framework that then led to folks like Reagan having the impact that he had. That you know, the, the ground had to be tilled and seeds had to be sown, and mm-hmm. somebody had to be paying attention to the field before somebody could harvest what was there. Right. And these are the people, and Robert Bork in particular, I think one of the intentions behind it was not necessarily to say, oh, it all boils down to Robert Bork. But it all boils down to lots of histories we don't know. There's a lot of sort of discrete history that makes up history. And I wanted to take the reader on some journey that was an unexpected historical journey.
0: And it's also the people we tend to forget.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or remember for a completely different reason.
0: <laughs> right. And, and that was the moment I had where I was like, oh, right, that guy. There's so many moments where you think, oh, this person is going to, of course, be the person that you follow, or this person is going to have this kind of trajectory, or this person is going to change the world in that way. And then it just doesn't happen. Right. We've got a character who's named Ayad Akhtar. He's written a play. He's had some experiences. (laughs) I'm slightly bored by those questions that are like, how much of this is you? And this to me is very sort of Philip Roth, Saul Bellow territory, a little Updike, maybe even a little Cheever. I mean, basically, dudes who have done (laughs) deeply autobiographical work that may or may not reflect the actual facts. Right, right. But it's the experience and the truth of the experience,
1: and an opportunity to perform their masculinity (laughs) or lack of.
0: But it was interesting to me as I was doing my homework before you and I sat down to talk, there's so many people who are just like, so which part of these are... And I know. It's the incredible. whole point is the art, right? It's the art. It's the story. It's how do I push this forward? How do I not limit myself? At least that's how I see it as a reader. I don't actually don't trust, want to Don't trust
1: the teller. Trust the tale. Who cares about the teller?
0: Well, I care about the teller because... I appreciate what he's doing and I appreciate his rage. I think there are a lot of people who've glossed over his rage mm-hmm. and don't quite see it. They think, Oh, well, he's just making his way in the world and everything. I'm like, no, he's a really angry dude. Yes, how do you not see the rage? And how do you just see this idea of a man saying, well, I'm an outsider or I'm not an outsider. I want to be part of this situation. I, I'll get to Riaz in a second. Cause I really like that. Am I saying his name properly? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I really like that character, so we need to spend some more time sure. with that dude. But yeah. people are so focused on Ayad, the character being a Muslim in America post-9-11 that they're missing the sex and the art and the family and, and the money and all of the all of the engines that drive storytelling. Yep. And it's like, here's this one thing that we're supposed to look at. And it's like, that's part of it. Well, I think and I think
1: he I think this narrator in part the rage you talk about or the anger you're talking about. Is, is fueled in part by the fact that that's constantly happening in his life. All this other stuff is so much more interesting than this dumb question about right. being Muslim. And, and really, 19 years after 9-11, still, is it still interesting? Because it really doesn't feel that interesting.
0: I think it's interesting to a certain segment of the population, and there's always going to be a segment of the population Mm. that will say, where are you from? And then you say, Milwaukee.
1: and That's fine. But but it's exactly like you say. I mean, there's so many other things. There's so many other things to be talking about when it comes to where we are and what's happened to this country. The question, the the Muslim question, for lack of a better way of putting it, is really not even that relevant to the Mm -hmm. matter.
0: I want to come back to the connection that you have with Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and mm-hmm. and write American writers like that where you're taking these big political ideas essentially and telling them through the POV of one guy yeah. who happens to have multiple pieces you know he's a difficult dad, interesting mom, complicated family story, makes a little money, has a little more freedom because he makes a little more money. He sort of pops up in these moments in history, and it's this incredibly American story. Where did this AAD start? Like, does this come out of the work you've done for the stage? Does this come out of disgraced and junk? Does this come out of film work? Does this come out of being a New Yorker in the world? Where did this come from?
1: I think all of the above. I mean, I think it's kind Mm -hmm. of hybrid polyglot. You know, heterogeneity, the constantly changing modes. And I think that they're a reflection of many forms of craft and many Mm -hmm. forms, many kinds of languages that I've been learning to speak, you know, scenes that move that have a kind of cinematic swiftness or an attention to cinematic detail or pages and pages of dialogue, like in a play. Or at one point, it actually becomes a play because it's like in a courthouse. And so it's like watching a play Mm -hmm. or long, long sentences that are sort of inspired by Philip Roth of a certain period or or Marcel Proust or somebody somebody who's trying to sort of encompass the world through grammar in some way. Right. Right. All of those influences, I think, in a way, what the book was the result of a kind of relaxation finally in my life as a writer where I stopped caring what it was that I was writing. I didn't care if it was a novel or if it was a memoir. Today, it's a memoir. Tomorrow, it's a social history. The day after that, it's a a play, but I'll just put everything in quotes rather than putting in the middle of the page. You know, it didn't matter because there was I, I I had an opportunity to sort of like unify all of it, if you will.
0: I keep coming back to the opening of the book You meet Ayad, you meet his family, you meet his uncle who goes back to Pakistan and has a very different experience. And then all of a sudden you switch gears and here we are in Scranton (laughs) in a broken down sob, having a very unpleasant experience with a cop. Yeah. Where are you from? No, where are you really from? Right. No, you didn't tell me where you're really from because Staten Island I mean, the character's born in Staten Island, and like, <laughs> I might pick Milwaukee over Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's that constant interrogation. Right. And then Ayad meets this dude, Riaz. Mm-hmm. He gets back to New York. He's started doing the kind of work that he's finding real freedom in. He's making a name for himself. He's working on what clearly will become a play that makes his mark. But he meets this hedge fund manager who is also Pakistani American, quite slick. Yeah. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm in the middle of Saul Bellows, (laughs) Ravelstein <laughs> all over again because yeah. suddenly it becomes the money and the booze and the sex yeah, yeah. and just the excess and the excess and the excess.
1: The lawn van, the lawn van, long coat. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Well, there's yeah. a little less like fancy fabric. There's a little, because we live in a different way now. Yeah. 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 You know, Ravelstein's written 20 years ago and, yeah. and silica was a thing and you know, yeah. your ties were a thing. Can we talk about Riaz for a second though? Because his motivation uh-huh. is really kind of excellent. Mm-hmm. And he is the absolute flip side of ad in a lot of ways
1: yeah totally he's a he's a guy who's made a ton of money selling debt, and that that's a whole theme in the book debt and mm-hmm. you know my father's debts and the financial system and and debt as the as the as the idea of the driving sort of uh, divider between appearance and reality in American life. But anyway, Riaz has made a lot of money on debt. And he has started a foundation, a, a philanthropic foundation, which is mm-hmm. committed to changing conversations and making lives better. And it's all about sort of changing the conversation around Islam. He's actually inspired by Sheldon Adelson, the the Jewish um, casino owner, who's a big funder of all kinds of pro-Jewish causes. He wants to do the same for the Muslim community. He feels like the only way that Muslims are going to have full citizenship at some point is through advocacy of this kind. And he really, really wants to make his mark, but it turns out he's got a kind of secret vendetta going on where he's, uh, (laughs) he's taking out, he's, I won't go into the specifics because it's a real payoff, but he's taking out his rage over a childhood episode that happened with his family, where his father mm-hmm. started to try, started tried to start a mosque in their hometown of uh, Scranton, and there are communities across the country today that are stopping mosques from being built. And Riaz mm-hmm. uh, wreaks some revenge on some of these communities, takes out his anger on them, and it's a kind of a deeper metaphor about. Well, it's it's a riff on Hajdi Murat. It's a riff on, on, mm-hmm. on the Tolstoy uh, novella on yep. Hajdi Murat. but it's also. Um, The book is trying to talk about how we process anger and how the processing of anger both leads to art, but it also leads to social change. And sometimes that social change is good and sometimes that social change is bad. So, yeah. So Riaz is working through his American issues by making money and by wreaking, you know, wreaking revenge.
0: I mean, what he does, and we'll let people discover for themselves. What he does is very, very clever. But without the money, it doesn't exist. No, of course not. Of course not.
1: He's of the he's of the mind, as I think the narrator ends up becoming of the mind that uh, you know the only way to full social being in this society is serious wealth. That you can't mm-hmm. actually participate in what this society has to offer, the best of what it has to offer, unless you come from a certain class, and that class is the elite class of, mm-hmm. of wealth.
0: That's the narrator's father's opinion too. I mean, he he chases money and he's got a gambling issue and yep. we meet him when he's buying really ill-considered real estate, but he says, <laughs> oh no, no, this is the future. This is the future. And you're like, yeah. Dude. Well, I think it's an,
1: argument, it's an argument argument. of the book that, that, that mm-hmm. money is what defines American belonging, American being, let's say American being, not American belonging. The American dream is substantially an
0: economic one. And I think that's part of the disappointment That you see, I mean, there there are plenty of people who do support the current president who are brown or they're immigrants or they're both. And you kind of say, what's happening here? And yet they see the current president as representative of all of the things they believe to be true about where hard work gets you. There are things that they have bought in, ideas that they've bought into.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And they don't want to let them go.
1: That's what America has been for them. My my parents came to America to pursue economic prosperity. I mean, not necessarily in a kind of crass, cynical way, but the Mm -hmm. soft power influence of the United States throughout the post-war years Mm -hmm. and promulgating an image of the good life here in America was all predicated on material abundance. And they were all images, ultimately, of a kind of franchise of the spirit that was founded on material abundance. And so they came to America wanting the benefits of that kind of wealth, that kind of prosperity. And so if if your American being or your American belonging, in this case, it's conditional on achieving something, mm-hmm. then if you don't achieve that thing, then you don't feel as American as you would like to, which is a very different kind of belonging than being from a, a country like Pakistan, say, and growing up and knowing the native smells and speaking the languages mm-hmm. and coming from a place where many generations of your ancestors are from. And that's a different sense of belonging, which you it's a blood and soil version of belonging mm-hmm. versus this idea of American belonging, which is very different, which we now seem to think is about equality.
0: <laughs> Wait, we <laughs> can we talk oh, about this yeah, we right. for a second?
1: <laughs> we we are wondering many of us are wondering whether
0: whether it's really
1: about equality.
0: The women in this book take a little more of a back seat in some ways than they do did in American Dervish, your first novel, which came out in 2012. Your narrator in American Dervish was so much younger. And of course, you're still part of your mother's sort of experience. And his mother's good friend comes to live with them. And right. the world is very different. I mean, your narrator comes right out and says it: I was a pig with women. And, and he has a very sort of specific experience. You know, we all go through phases, whatever. This is a deeply masculine book in ways that were slightly surprising to me. And Partially because I've read your other work, partially because it seems like a really interesting moment to start asking questions about how fathers and sons interact or how men interact in arenas of business and art yeah, and just the world in general. And I'm just wondering, when did that start sort of start taking shape for you?
1: which part of it you the 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 masculine um
0: the yeah the the really sort of this is a very testosterone heavy book my friend yes, yes. <laughs> i mean this is really no no it is this, it is, is. this is a dude book and it's yes. great
1: no but question. it's really
0: a dude book
1: yes no question i didn't think about it me wife i i think i just let myself respond to the moment mm-hmm, and the moment yeah. was a moment of personal grief because my mother had passed away and it was also mm-hmm. a moment of concern because my father was careening off a cliff and Donald Trump was now president and it seemed like the sort of politics of our country were really crumbling. And it seemed to me that I was sort of seeing a pretty big wide picture that I had been seeing for some time and trying to communicate and that had to do with some shift in our philosophical bedrock around value and what we deemed valuable as a society and how, how a pivot to individualism was undermining any collective sense of what it was we were in together. Mm -hmm. And I mean that individualism across the board. I don't mean it to, I mean it on the left as well, that the Mm -hmm. cult, the cult, maybe the rightful cult, but the cult of individual rights has become the dominant theme and the dominant sort of metric of American flourishing. This, Mm -hmm. This, The belief somehow that this country should exist in order to protect me to do what I want. That's not really mm-hmm. a. That's not really the definition of a country. We can't get very far with that as a as a collective agreement. I'll mm-hmm. I'll take you know, you leave me alone and let me do what I want. <laughs> that's not it. what is that? <laughs> What's that? I don't I don't is that a country? It doesn't seem like a country. In the midst of all of this happening, I wanted. I felt it wasn't even a desire. It was a need. It was almost a survival. It was a need to summon a, a requisite eloquence. And energy and fierceness and vitality mm-hmm. to address the national zeitgeist, and, and I don't mean that in a fashion or a fad type way, but in mm-hmm. the sense of the word.
0: But isn't that what art's supposed to do? You could have written this as a memoir; it would have been similar. It would have been different, but you chose to write this as a novel because you've got the freedom. It's yeah. a much more fluid form. Memoir, yeah. you do still need to hew to the facts if you're yep. going to call it a memoir. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to get canceled. in theory. <laughs> James Frey, James Frey, chapter two. (laughs) Oh, there were a couple of other doozies too. But the idea that you can work on a level and a scope that you can't, if you're telling the story of one man's life, whether it's you or your dad or one of your uncles, or to be able to tell this panoramic story of America. Totally. You're turning back on influences that go as far as Shakespeare Again, and I, I know I keep bringing up Philip Roth and Saul Bellow you're and these right, and these right, dudes.
1: But You're rightly bringing up Philip Roth and Saul Bellow because they're all over the book. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that first sentence of, of Augie March, you know, I'm an American Chicago born. The book comes right out of that sentence. And Philip Roth, you know, by design, I mean, there are many scenes that are nods to scenes. And, you know, there's a, the famous Portnoy's Complaint is quoted in right. the book. So the famous scene of right. Portnoy's Complaint. I mean... You know, and and of course Shakespeare. It's it's always complicated. To, I, I have to always add this caveat: complicated talk about Shakespeare because critics think you're trying to make yourself look good, and audiences can tend to think that it means oh, it's going to be boring because Shakespeare. Oh, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But but Shakespeare. I mean, he really is. I don't know sui generous phenomena in human civilization. Something about his. You know, Stephen Booth, the great Stephen Booth. You know, once said. Comparing Shakespeare to other poets is like comparing King Kong to other monkeys. And and it's it's true. There is something about the processes, the the cognitive, poetic, and imagistic, and oral processes that he undertakes in his writing that mirror the deepest levels of our, our cognitive function, I think. And deep reading of Shakespeare has been the greatest school in understanding rhetoric, understanding audiences, mm-hmm. understanding the, the coupling and decoupling of meaning, how to play with the instability of language in order to create a vivid poetic field. He's the best right. of the best. So Shakespeare's always, always in my work. Every single play I write is in dialogue with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. The syntax of this book is almost, it's, it's almost directly the result of a daily engagement with Shakespeare for five years. I would spend every single day in the morning reading Shakespeare, sort of trying to internalize this operation of moving from one pole to another inside a single line of iambic pentameter. It's almost like he mirrors the electric movement between from negative to positive and the the movement of the current along that constantly throughout his work. The poem will move in that way. It creates so much intellectual and emotional energy in Mm -hmm. language. And so all of that is stuff that I've been... Study. So of course, you know, he's all over the book, not just in obvious references like The Merchant of Venice and and mm-hmm. you know Shakespeare's late obsession with syphilis, but just at the level of syntax and grammar. It's it's Shakespearean in its attempt to tell vividly and to speak directly about so many things. With richness and opposition.
0: So, are you going back to the sonnets every day, or are you noodling around wherever you feel like it? For for a long time, it's been the sonnets. I
1: mean, I'm in the sonnets right now, and that's what I've been in for a while. But you know, when I was writing junk, Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two,
0: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I
1: was I was in Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two. I, I don't know. I've read Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, probably twenty times. I broke the entire play down into all of its constituent scenes. Coriolanus is a play that I read all the time. With Shakespeare, I, I don't, I will often just read a passage endlessly, like, you know, the first speech, Shylock's first speech or the opening of Merchant of Venice, mm-hmm. right? And just kind yeah. of, it, it doesn't take much, because at his best, you know, which is so much of his work, it's all, it's all at a certain level, and it's all present, the modality, it's like a hologram, in a way, yep. the way that it's working, you, you're, you're finding the same mechanisms, the same poetic procedures are used over and over again in endless variation. And so you can kind of like plug in. It's like a, you know, plugging your phone into the to the wall socket. You know, you just get a little current charge up and okay, I'm ready to go.
0: Can we go back to something you just said a second ago? People are afraid of Shakespeare. Yes, they are. I think it's going to be boring. How do we convince them that that's not the case? Well, I think it's it's
1: hard to, you know, in my case, I'll, my, my example is, is probably the best best way that I could put it, just how hard it is. I read him in high school. I thought it was boring. I couldn't understand what the hell this stuff was. It didn't make any sense to me. Same thing in college you got to be kidding me. This is boring. Mm-hmm. I don't like this stuff. Why is he speaking like this? Okay. They spoke like this. Then nobody speaks like this now. What's the big deal. And then I was in a summer program for theater and I mm-hmm. was assigned a scene and a monologue, a monologue out of, out of Lear. I was, did uh, Edmund, Edmund's first, mm-hmm. monologue, first monologue and a, uh, and a scene and I was taught how to break down the lines And then I experienced the most extraordinary things. I -hmm. experienced how the language created emotion for me. Right. That the language was operating on my interiority. And it was a very surprising thing that I did a little research and discovered this is what everybody said Shakespeare did. (laughs) (laughs) And and not only that, inside, if you were paying close enough attention inside a scene, there were indications of where you should move as an actor. Mm -hmm. That he was giving you guidance for where to move on stage. And, you know, this, this teacher was sort of explaining it again. It made perfect sense. And when I was doing the scene, I was like, yeah, when I move, this line now makes more sense. He's like, exactly. That's Shakespeare. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I watched the, the amazing RSC series playing Shakespeare with John Barton. You know, it's Judy Dench and Patrick Stewart and, and uh, David Suchet and, and all these wonderful actors doing scenes. From Shakespeare, Ian McKellen doing scenes from Shakespeare as John Barton walks them through the process of unpacking and unlocking the dramatic richness and poetic wisdom for actors inside Shakespearean verse. Once I'd seen that, and I Mm -hmm. I suggest to anybody see that, watch it, especially the, the the episode where David Suchet and Patrick Stewart both do the same scene from Merchant of Venice. They do Shylock. Both of them do Shylock and the variations and the differences in how they approach it is just extraordinary, extraordinary. And so that opened up a whole level. So then I was, you know, reading it and doing it. And then, and then there've been these amazing encounters. I mean, Rylance, you know, my first encounter with Rylance doing Shakespeare was a revelation. I mean, I was on the stage for his um, Richard III just a few feet away from him for much of the performance. And, you know, what he was able to do, I mean, it was a whole different. I've been already studying Shakespeare for a while, but he opened up a whole different level of, of, of it for me. So, you know, Shakespeare is the gift that keeps giving. And it seems absolutely impossible that Shakespeare could continue to give, given how much time I've spent reading. I mean, you would figure you'd get bored of the stuff sooner or later. But it just, it's, you know, I guess it's like a Mozart for babies, you know, it just makes you smarter.
0: <laughs> there are plenty of things I never would have understood reading Shakespeare when I was younger, simply because I didn't have a frame of reference. Yeah. But when you see, especially in Homeland Elegies, when you see how everyone's interacting with each other. I mean, there's even a moment where AED says, oh, I'm a neoliberal courtier. <laughs> you're like, well, actually, dude, you are right. You are, in fact, a neoliberal courtier. <laughs> and the SEC is going to come have a conversation with you, so you yeah. might be a little concerned. <laughs> this might be a moment to be concerned. And again, yeah. I don't want to spoil it for people, because the way, the way it unfolds, It's a very propulsive narrative. And I know I keep coming back to this, but I feel very similarly about Shakespeare, at least for the plays, where you're just like, again, everyone is constantly moving. Yeah, right. No one stays put, even in major monologues. People do not stay put unless an actor decides to do that. But really, the people you remember the most, the performances you remember the most, is that constant movement.
1: What's interesting, you say that because Shakespeare was writing for a very specific stage, the Globe Theater. Right. He was writing right. for an empty stage that mm-hmm. had three tiers and that was a three quarter stage. And right. so he had to be addressing people at the bottom, at the middle, and at the top, usually according to class. Mm-hmm. And he had to be addressing people. So the movement you're talking about inside the verse is actually also physically part of what he was doing. In his work, in order to make sure that the story was getting out to all of these people. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing the the way the architecture of the theater is is embodied in the verse as well.
0: But are you a playwright who writes novels, or are you a writer who happens to work in multiple formats?
1: I am a dramatic storyteller. I'm a dramatic storyteller who is interested in a very particular kind of movement. I I am obsessed with a movement of a character from A to its opposite, Mm -hmm. and what happens through that process of movement at the level of recognitions, the recognitions that those characters have as they move from a to the opposite
0: mm-hmm. and the odd
1: and the recognitions, the audience has in the process and, and the intensity of those reversals, how strong and large can the reversals be in this movement from a to its opposite. That to me is the essence of drama.
0: What's been the question that no one's asked you about Homeland. I hesitate to, I hesitate to bring it up,
1: but I will, you know, we've, We've known each other a while. So th- th- there was a review. Somebody wrote, somebody sent my, you know, my assistant actually sent me this review on, on Goodreads, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was interesting. It was interesting. It was interesting. This guy says, you know, uh, starts going through, he's got to the point in the book where there's a, you no, know, there's a character named Kamal Morse, mm-hmm. who's, a, who's a NFL player who gives up his career in the NFL to run for city council in Kansas city and to to change his community. And, he says, you know, there, I, I, there is no Kamal, this guy says, there is no Kamal Morse in the NFL. And then he says, there, not only that, there's no, there's no Kamal Morse, KM, there's a K-M, Khalil Mack, but he's a Christian, he's not a Muslim. There is no this, there is no that. There is no Jerry Jacobs in Alabama, in the Alabama Senate. So there was perhaps no clerk who worked for Robert Bork named Jerry Jacobs. There is no this, there is no that. He said, this was the point at which I realized maybe 20% of this is true. If that, what what I've been surprised by, and, and this is a reviewer on Goodreads with Google who could figure this stuff out. Right, right. Right? But I've been surprised by major, major critics who just assume that all of it is true and all of it is me. Somebody just wrote the, the other day, said something about Octar had had a play premiere in Chicago in 2017, does he not think that we are going to be able to figure out who this star is that he's making fun of? Well, here's the thing. I didn't have a play premiere in Chicago in 2017. So the, the thing that surprises me is that the curiosity around whether or not it's fact or fiction is, right. something that is in many ways so easily addressed in today's era, but nobody cares enough because, and this is what speaks to a larger political thing. Nobody is interested in finding out the facts, right? It's a good story. So it must be true. And if I'm a snake oil salesman, me, the narrator in the, in the Mm -hmm. book, if I am an unreliable narrator, right? Nobody's, nobody's calling me out on it. I'm just so surprised by how, you know, if there's an interest, if there's any abiding interest as you read the book and you're supposed to review it or whatever Mm -hmm. in whether this is fact or fiction, a simple Google search a simple half an hour spent doing some google searches would probably reveal that almost everything that you are trying to verify is unverifiable. Right. So what does that say? So that that's the thing that I think surprises me the most, but I think in a way, you know, we were my my fiance and I were watching the debate last night and the thing that that she was commenting on and I, I think it was very perceptive is like how how people are want to believe a liar. That that, that they don't even want to do the beginnings of creative critical thinking in terms of sort of getting some some distance. And and so it was very surprising. This this reviewer on Goodreads, you know, laid it all out. It wasn't really right. even that hard. <laughs> That's been surprising. That's
0: wild to me. It's that is surprising. wild. Yeah, really. Yeah. And and maybe it's because I read a lot of Roth when I was younger. Yeah. I mean, I went really deep into Roth when I was in my twenties. It's that voice. Yeah. It's that voice that's so specific to a moment and a place like, yeah. is, is this, is your narrator going to be okay? Is he going to make it out on the other side of this? I do think he will. Yeah, I probably. think he knows exactly who probably. he is and where he is.
1: Yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty canny. I think he'll probably be okay. You
0: know? Do you think he'll ever come back to this guy? I don't see how I can.
1: <laughs> Alexandra Schwartz in The New Yorker asked me about it and I said, you know, I just, I don't think I'm coming back here. I think this is a bonfire of kindling I've been gathering my whole life. I, it's mm-hmm. gone up in flames and I don't see how I salvage anything out of this. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a terminal point in a way and it feels very rewarding to have been able to assemble all of these mm-hmm. into this one work. and And now I think it's another stage, whatever this is ahead.
0: I remember seeing Junk when it opened in New York and thinking, this is amazing, you just get to write about money. There's there's nothing that. about Islamophobia. Like it's like right. you got to break out of the box. And and it's not to say that American Dervish isn't an important novel. It is. And and it's it's a story that needed to be told. And and when you see disgrace performed, it is explosive and beautiful and shocking and all of the things that drama is supposed to be. I mean, it won the Pulitzer for a reason. The who and the what, the same thing. And and junk, here's this play. The 80s are alive and well, and it opens with that great line, you know, this is a story of kings. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And I was very fortunate to see a production where the this, this staging was amazing. Yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. very, it was weirdly Miami Vice. like there Yeah, was totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fluorescent yeah. and a lot of like turquoise yeah. and a lot of fuchsia. And you were just like, okay, what's happening? But it made perfect sense. Yeah. And again, you were doing a similar thing where no one stays still. No one stays still. The no
1: yeah. well, set design for that production that you <laughs> saw was um, largely inspired by the Globe theater stage. Yep. It was an attempt to do a kind of Seagram's building version of the globe theater stage.
0: And it worked. <laughs> so the question is, are you working on a play next? Are you working, are you doing the Hollywood thing? What, where's the storytelling taking you?
1: I'm, I'm working on a, on a TV show. I hope it's not a Hollywood, uh, Hollywood version mm-hmm. of it, but, but I am working on a TV show mm-hmm. uh, for one of the streamers. Um, You know, we're kind of in a holding pattern just because of COVID and decision right. and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. There is no meaningful theater right now. So I don't know. I don't know what we're going to what we're going to do. And I would like to write a play, but I, I've got some, you know, I'm I'm lucky, lucky to be gainfully employed for the next year or so writing, writing mm-hmm. adaptations and stuff like that. So that's what I'll be doing for now.
0: Well, it's also nice that you get to take your time between books. Are there are times where you just want to say to someone, no, no, it's okay. You can, it, we'll be here. We'll be here. You know, just do the thing you need to do. And when you look at your body of work, if we if we use American Dervish as the starting point and this coming of age, and it's a very American story, it's Milwaukee. I mean, this kid, like we all know this kid. Yeah. We all have little brothers. We've been that kid. Like we know this kid. And then you pop back up with Disgraced, right? Which caught everyone's attention, and has has that's been produced globally, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah all yeah. of your work has been done globally. Yeah. And translated, too. I mean, American Dervish, 20 countries. Am I getting that
1: right? I think, yeah, maybe more territories, but 20 languages. Yeah.
0: Okay, so here you are sending these very American stories around the world. You've got to you've got to be thinking about what the sort of next.
1: Sure. I'm working on a streamer thing, which I which I think will both make sense and not make sense. I don't mm-hmm. make sense to you, but it may not make sense to some people who have a different sort of idea. I mean, you know, look, I've been toying for some time with the idea of writing a, a detective novel. So I think maybe mm-hmm. that'll be something that's in my future at some point. Maybe some version of an Umberto Eco thing type thing. I mean, right. We'll, so we'll we'll see. I mean, I have I have no idea. But but right now I'm gainfully employed to write uh, to write for the screen. For right. Me, so that's what I'm going
0: to do. I personally think that's very exciting. (laughs) I'm very, very happy to see that. Is there anything you need to add that we didn't hit? I know the book's been out for a while, but at the same time, I don't like to give up storylines. So it's kind of like... oh, it's great.
1: It's great. This is amazing. I love this conversation.
0: Oh, good. Okay.
1: Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.